Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today for the last time by Bradley Gerard, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm good, thank you, John. Yeah, looking forward to uh, leaving us, are Well, dumping us. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I wouldn't say that necessarily, <laughs> but um, you know, a, a different challenge. Yes, indeed. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. On air, and obviously, I will say that to you again later. Anyway, and Alex Newman, how are you doing, Alex? I'm okay, thanks. I'm not going anywhere. Good. I'm glad to hear it because I've got lots of uh, plans for you. <laughs> okay. Ominous. Not ominous. All good stuff. So, we've had a busy week this week, uh, particularly on the oil and gas front. Results from the oil majors, uh, Shell and BP. There's some stuff going on at the small end of the market that's quite interesting as well that we're going to talk about. And at the midpoint of the market as well. And the midpoint of the market, my Everywhere. goodness, across the board. But yes, let's start with, uh, with what's been happening in the news this week, Bradley. Yeah, I guess one of the interesting things out of seven days, obviously we're starting to sort of see a bit of a, a mixed picture among sort of you know retailers, and I guess Audi, um, their sort of their continued march was particularly interesting this week because um, they passed six point two percent market share of the UK grocery market, which doesn't sound like much, but they actually now puts them in the top five, and meant they um, leapfrogged Co-op. Uh, and that data came out actually on the same day that Richard Pennycook, who is the co-op chief executive, suddenly announced he was stepping down. So Audi, who is um, making a big play in terms of growth, especially there's lots of stories about both Audi and Lidl employing more people, uh, building more stores against the incumbents. And it just, I guess it's interesting from a retail perspective to look at the very divergent fortunes of winners and losers and so we had Dunelm uh, results yesterday uh, not a retailer in the same ilk as Audi but consumer facing and they've had a real struggle yeah I mean that's that's quite a company specific issue based on an acquisition that they've recently made there are specific issues yes of course but it, it's still nonetheless um, you know, the, the trading wasn't strong enough to offset some of those things so and even the other retailers you know, sort of Next is looking a bit patchy the past few months whereas other companies who do a similar thing, maybe online-focused um, businesses like um, you know, Boohoo and etc., seem to be still doing quite well. So it is, it is interesting. There's definitely um, something opening up in the retail about, I guess, as an investor, starting to look at about being picky, really. Mm, funny, funny if you mentioned Next, because uh, Mr. Bearball this week has, uh, has looked at Next, and he's actually thinking of buying it now that sentiment is uh, at a low ebb. That can be a good time to buy a stock. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you talk about Audi. You know, it's taking taking market share, uh, but but you know, some of the bigger supermarkets, Tesco, uh, Morrison, have, have had a good recovery this year, and and Sainsbury's is kind of holding its own. So. Yeah, and also obviously we've seen um, last week, you know, Tesco's very big deal, potential deal with Booker, which could be um, you know transformational in terms of Tesco's presence um, in. Another sub-segment, I suppose, of the um, retail market. Obviously, Morrison's looking at um, restarting the Safeway brand as a kind of rival to Booker as well. So those businesses are changing too. And then obviously we've got Sainsbury's making the play with um, its purchase of Argos. So those businesses are changing too. And, and how that will impact their sort of share of the grocery market would be quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Richard Pennycook was obviously uh, the chief of the whole co-op group, which includes yes. banking operation and, and a number of other things as well. He was formerly the FD of Morrison. Oh, interesting. He was indeed. Um, and yeah, his, his departure from there was seen as a... A bit, a bit of a you know a, a, a bad uh, omen, and and so it proved as it happened. 
Well, perhaps there's uh, uh, further bad omens to come for co-op then. Well, yeah, uh, maybe we'll so. See. But then you would think that, you know, that's that's the one that people are going after rather than Tesco, rather than Sainsbury, rather than Morrison's. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Because those those three, you just mentioned their market share is obviously well above the likes of Audi and Lidl. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this isn't necessarily, a, you know, a, a story of the consumer being, being weak um, because we are seeing... Uh, continued good demand for housing, for example. Now, it's not necessarily a pure consumer story, but it's related. Yeah, it's related to confidence of consumers, absolutely. And um, yeah, there have been, I mean, there were in December, the sort of the credit figures weren't quite so good. And that was partly linked to a reduction in mortgages. But still, the, the absolute number is still pretty decent. And as you say, there's a bit of a wobble from some of the estate agents. But generally, I think I would say that the, um, you know, the housing market in the UK is still pretty robust and although there are fears about what brexit might mean for it we still have um as we've written the news piece this week you know a chronic shortage of housing and there was a white paper out this week which um you know bids to sort of help solve that problem but really yeah look, i mean the, 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 there was some criticism of this paper for not going far enough yeah I mean, it, it was a bit soft really one, one of the things that some people want is for the house builders to be forced to build on plots of land that they own more quickly so what is quite often the case is house builders will buy land then they'll um, get planning permission on it and they might not for years actually build anything on that plot of land um and there is, there is a consultation question in the white paper asking generally whether um, the government should enforce um a two-year limit so once you've got planning permission you have to build something on two years it's about three at the moment apparently but they haven't pushed that through they've asked the industry whether that would be a good thing well the industry is obviously going to say no i would presume that would be the case (laughs) um so the government hasn't been as hard as it could have been in the eyes of some of course potentially pandered still a bit to the housing house building industry and yeah you have to ask that yes while there are some developments in terms of the government's kind of acceptance that maybe we can't build a house for everyone to own so maybe we need to look at what we're building whether we can build more rental properties and better gear the um, financial clout i suppose of the private sector and that's something we have started to see people like legal in general getting involved in this build to rent thing so that that that's a potential income stream for big pension funds and let's face it the private sector has the cash the public sector does not really have the cash to reignite um, property construction from its almost zero base in the public sector yeah i mean this this is the big hole in house building is is the social side of things the government-led side of things it's nice not coming back last year at a wedding i met a guest who was an architect and he was doing um a housing project for um i think it was sutton was the constituency the first time they've ever even thought about building a house in 20 years that local government agency so it just shows you that yeah, the public sector has really, really not built many properties at all. Um, you know, not just in London and, and the Embrons, but nationally as well. It, yeah, it's a it's a big hole to fill. And um, as as we said, the private house builders, it's in their interest to sit on land because if prices are going to go up, they might as well wait for them to do that and then build some more houses to realise that higher price for them. Yeah. So, so I mean, nothing to worry about. I mean, you know, that if you want exposure to the housing market uh, as a as an equity investor, it's the house builders generally. Nothing in this white paper to suggest that that times are going to get any more tough for them. Not right now. No. The only things that could crop up are, of course, if somehow the government does push builders to um, construct things more quickly. That could, in a rising market, obviously, then potentially limit the upside in sale prices that such companies could achieve. And there's also talk of support for smaller house builders, but how much that would really seriously dent or eat into 
the types of um, and size of business that the larger house builders do. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it's a big threat, albeit it could be a small one. No, and uh, I mean this week we've had results uh, to emphasise the point from uh, Red Row, um, which were decent. Yeah, more than decent. The share price there has recovered from an intraday low of about a pound after post Brexit. Uh, what is it now? Four pound seventy a share. Yeah, it's just remarkable. The, the house. Which, which we kind of suspected that the, the, the sell-off at, uh, on Brexit fears had been overdone on the day of the referendum, but n- not a bounce of this magnitude. No, exactly. It's quite remarkable. But as you say, there was. Um just, I guess, unbridled fear and confusion post the referendum. It took, I guess, people in the in the locations whereby maybe stock trading is more prevalent, like London, by surprise. Perhaps in other areas of the country, it wasn't such a surprise. But then, yeah, it caused a real schism in markets. And, um, you know, Jonas, our property correspondent, you know, rightly said, this is all a storm in a teacup. And let's face it, let's look at the actual fundamentals of the house builders. They're sound. The country needs more housing. They're well-financed businesses. You know, there's nothing really to panic about yet until the economy goes off a cliff and house house prices plunge indefinitely. Indeed, not easy to phase Jonas Crossland. It's not. No, he's a, he's a cool <laughs> character. Cool character. He won't be flustered. Indeed. Okay, let's talk about the big oil and gas stories that are in the news section this week. Uh, where should we start, Alex? Should we start with Ithaca? Let's start with Ithaca. I think that's the biggest story. Uh, we knew that. BP and Shell results were coming out, but we didn't necessarily know that Ithaca was going to be taken over. So 20% shareholder Delek, which is an Israeli conglomerate, on Monday launched a bid, which was accepted immediately by the the, the, the board, and they've urged shareholders to accept it. I mean, it's 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 a little bit... It's frugal, a little bit, bit frugal. It's a little bit frugal. Um, it's 11% premium to the UK uh, shares. But it's worth considering, I mean, a few things. Obviously, we had some readers who are a bit disgruntled, upset with the, the price because they, they see the, the greater stellar area asset, which is just about to start generating cash for Ithaca, as a, a huge missed opportunity, really, for, for shareholders uh, to benefit. And from. that was the basis, that, that potential was the basis for the, the tip that we recently published on I- Ithaca. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we were looking forward to that, that next chapter as well, because this is a, you know, this is a really, really major North Sea development. It's going to be very interesting to see how that might uh, spur additional investment in the, in the North Sea as well, when, once you've seen how, you know, this really strong management team's ability to get this project over the line, though it has faced uh, some delays over the last couple of years. But that's probably unlikely to be the case. In the end, our advice or my advice was uh, that this bid where, you know, that it could have been a little bit more is is about fair and, and Delic as the, the shareholder and, and now the acquirer have stuck with the company through some pretty tough times in the last couple of years. So they bought in in November 2015 uh, when, when the, you know, at, at a premium when the shares were uh, below 50p. They've watched the share price rise about five times in the last year, so it's not like they've, you know, they've been as opportunistic as they possibly could have been. They have waited for some sort of assurance, as the market has done. I think as the the market has benefited from that as well. So, so investors, you know, I'm, uh, should have been looking at a gain in the last year, certainly. Yeah, it's been a good tip then. So I mean, we tipped that at the end of November. It's up about fifty percent since. So. Uh good work there yeah i mean we we had tipped it before uh you know and it was prior to the the oil price decline so that you know it's, it's worth balancing out the two points at which we uh we just dis- we decided the ithaca story was uh was a flyer but i mean most recently i think it's it's been 
it's been a it's been a stronger call, I think. Yeah, um, Delek are involved in another um, UK listed company, Faro Petroleum, which you mentioned in this piece. Yeah, so it's interesting on the day to see Faro shares rise quite a lot, just just on the news of their their peer being taken out. So they in December received uh, a, a, around about fourteen percent stake uh, from Delek as well. This company's got a lot of cash on its balance sheet. It's clearly seen there's some value opportunities in the North Sea. Faro, along with Ithaca, have been very, very good at, at reducing uh, uh, operating costs. Uh, obviously, costs have come down across the industry, um, but they've clearly seen the, the, the value opportunity uh, for, for, for North Sea uh, producers. And, you know, it wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there, there may be a, an additional stake taken there. Obviously, they're getting towards the level where, whereby they might, might need to make a formal offer. But we'll be speaking with Fair on a podcast in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully we can get a bit more information from the uh, management when we when we do that. All right, good stuff. I mean, you know, obviously, it's interesting because the overarching narrative regarding the North Sea is one of, of decline. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the talk at the moment is is about how, how these projects are getting decommissioned. Shell, whose results uh, were published in the last week as well, they basically pulled out. I mean, there's some motions by the chief executive Ben Van Buren, sort of suggesting that no, they're still committed to the North Sea, but they have just sold a huge chunk of their assets there. But then uh, someone's bought them, so someone has bought. Someone them, else obviously. has seen opportunity there. There is the opportunity, um, but you know, to what degree these these assets are going to be run for cash? I mean, they're obviously going to require some capital investment as well. Uh, whether they're going to be run for cash or or you know, expanded sort of remains to be seen. So, so it is a very uncertain time for the North Sea. Obviously, labour has been decimated as well in in Aberdeen and and the, the you know in the the economies which which service the mm. the region as well, which uh, doesn't make it, it that easy to you know for for companies just to pile back in. No, interesting. I mean, you mentioned uh, Shell. Uh, obviously, they had results this week. Um, BP have had results this week and this is interesting because these are the two big guns mm. and it's quite a contrasting story there. it is but they are both if you look at the yield which in a way is the market's proxy for how they're being valued and when you when we'd normally look at companies with a, a nearly a 7% yield we'd that would be a bit of a red flag yeah you'd they're, be you'd be a bit bit cautious yeah. in circumspect but they're both you know they're both they're both trading roughly at that level at the moment but the i i do think uh, uh, you're right. The sentiment is is sort of I, I think split a little bit, and we've we've lent over the years with with Shell. I mean, partly that's due to this, this continued onerous payments for the Gulf of Mexico spill, which you know they're still eating up you know billions of dollars a year for BP. Um, but it's it's where they are in the investment cycle. So Shell um, last year acquired BG. That was a big capital outlay, big strategic bold move. Some place serious questions over. The, the gas exposure there and, and we you know we still have some concerns but bp is now doing its investing now and that is placing some quite heavy strains at this point in the cycle on their on their on their cash so uh, the, the the market reaction to bp's results this week was uh, a bit of a sell-off whereas despite weak earnings at shell uh, there was a, a sort of positive bump on the day that's that's since declined but when they when they published their results and and, and i think you, you talk about in the piece the difference between you know it is related to this investment cycle uh or the relative points at the investment cycle that shell and bp are in shell it's now cash more cash generative quite yeah. significantly more cash generative and that supports a dividend which is what we're all interested in of course yeah absolutely so um so yeah i mean it plays to the dividend story and shell has based its whole strategy around creating what they they call these these cash engines so that they can continually you know that it can continually 
build their sources of cash, they obviously obviously punish the cost base as, as much as they probably can do. If you're going to be bullish on BP, you'd say, I mean, it, obviously it costs to invest in you know in the in the future, and these are the sort of holdings we don't really recommend. Uh, investors, you know, are looking to flip on a month by month basis. These are long, uh, sort of decade long core holdings. So BP, in their defence, would say, look, we're building for the future. Uh, fair enough, but it's still, you know, I th- it still could make for a slightly rocky year for their shares. I think. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, I mean, let's stick with the results section for the time being. Um, I mean, next week's cover feature, which you are also writing for us, Alex, uh, been a busy couple of weeks for you. Yeah, um, is mining. Uh, which has also had a, a fairly strong recovery from the low points of, of last year. This week we've had results from Rio Tinto, which looked good, and Rangold Resources, the gold miner, which looked good. Comments? Yeah, comments. Um, I mean, Rangold uh, was sort of beaten to the punch a week ago. Their their peer, Sentamin, which owns the Sakari mine in Egypt, uh, I think they quintupled their dividend, which, which putting them on a sort of 7%, 7% yield as has really sort of locked in, I think, their their share valuation, which obviously for gold miners is very, very subject to the you know, the volatility of the of the of the commodity which underpins it. Rangold hasn't uh, decided to match that. Uh they you know, they're focused like BP is on, on building projects for the future, which, you know, many of their B, uh, many of their, their peers have questions over. You know, their uh, gold gold mines don't tend to last forever. Um but uh, Rangold's only I mean, still still hike their dividend to one uh, one dollar a share. I mean, it doesn't really put them onto a sort of high yielding basis, but they've still got an enormous amount of cash on the balance sheet. And this is an interesting period for gold miners. I think do they go out and buy smaller companies? Do they uh, build build projects? Do they return uh, cash to shareholders? They're they're having to make some strategic decisions, but I think these are all decisions which uh, investors can probably look on with a bit of hope because they should be adding value to the company i guess an important aspect of that decision making process is is trying to understand where the price of the underlying commodity is going obviously in this case gold it's had a good good week it has yeah so i think i checked this morning it was up to about one thousand two hundred forty dollars after trump's uh, election as i'm sure we've talked about on this podcast before uh, the expectations were that gold would would sail away with this unpredictable uh, new administration. It collapsed, and that's probably because people piled into equities and other asset classes, which and the dollar got stronger. Yeah, and the dollar got stronger, of course, uh, which offer a yield and return, which obviously gold doesn't. I think some of that sentiment is peeling away now, and that is inevitably going to be good for gold. Gold tends to move in one direction, and it's rarely really flat. And uh, I think since the beginning of the year, the rally. I would say probably speaks to political uncertainty. I mean, another another strong. It's been another strong month for buyers of uh, coins and bars, which suggests there's you know there's there's still among retail investors there's there's quite a lot of uh, there's a lot of hope for the the, the metal in year ahead, or perhaps little hope for the rest of the world. But um, yeah, I, th- I think I mean my personal view on gold, mm. which I've written about before, is that I think it's just a sensible insurance policy yeah. to have a little bit of gold um, and and and. Preferably through physical uh, methods rather than through through ETFs. I mean, that's just my view. Yeah, I, th- I suppose the bonus then, you know, if we're talking about companies, is is that gold miners do offer the the chance of generating some income and some cash whilst getting ex- exposure on a leveraged basis. Plus, to the, asset. Get the gearing, yeah, yeah. So, um, 
But, uh, you know, as ever, it's a volatile space. So um, it's, uh, you know, uh, we remain cautious, if slightly optimistic this year. So let's quickly talk about Rio. Um, I mean, is that, a, is that a commodity price story as well? Or is there something more going on there? I think the story they wanted it to be about yesterday was that they remain an income stock. A year ago... Uh, Actually, that's a chunk of yield. Yeah, yeah I don't is. ever remember seeing... I mean, they've always been a big payer yeah. in, in absolute terms, but uh, yeah. not at that, that level of yield. I... I <sighs> I think it has been in this yield before. I mean, the the issue they've had, obviously, in the last five years is this, the slow decline of their the main metals they're exposed to. In the last year, it's been very, very strong for iron ore and coal, and no one really saw that coming. Uh, but that's that was based on uh, some Chinese stimulus in the second half. But they really want to be seen as a dividend stock, so uh, and a and a, a shareholder return stock. So a year after canning their progressive dividend they've returned to the table with a 170 cents a share uh full year dividend which is 70 percent of their underlying earnings and that's well above the their restated policy so they're clearly looking to get you know the the, the traction with investors uh once again on that front which might uh, potentially point to some uncertainties they have about their end markets that now they want to be an income stock rather than a value play but i mean a large diversified miner that's what they're that's what they're really there for. They should be returning some income to shareholders. All right, interesting. But that would suggest it's no longer a growth story, which which in years past, I mean, not too long ago, I mean, mining was not a... It, yes, they, they paid dividends, but they weren't an income play. They were a growth play because yeah. it was a play on the, the, the Chinese super cycle, basically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and which remains very uncertain. So last, last, month, uh, last week, rather, uh, we saw Chinese central bank uh, uh, raise overnight short-term lending immediately you see a sell-off 3-4% of all the big miners. So there's real, there's real concern in the markets and the big investors which hold these stocks that at any moment now China is going to start this transition to consumer economy, which, uh, you know, it's been we've, been long, about, we've been talking about absolutely. for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, and that probably speaks to as well the huge gains in the share prices in the last year that there might be, you know, now might be the time that some people are looking to take profit. So, uh I think, as we said in the FTSE 350 uh, outlook for the year, it's all about the metal weighting this year, and uh, iron ore. I think, which is uh, which the big miners are heavily exposed to, looks a little bit uncertain uh, for me. Okay, interesting. And uh, you've written something else. I, I think we will uh, we'll, we'll leave readers to, to to have a look at this one in the magazine. Uh, this new company on AIM, Diversified Gas and Oil, which is uh, which is a very interesting new model. Yeah, it's a boring name. Uh, but Sounds really boring. Uh, but, you know, we like boring, I think, generally. Okay. Um, it is diversified in the sense that most uh, junior oil and gas companies which come to the market promise uh, an asset somewhere in the ground that is going to, you know, that is going to reap huge rewards for shareholders, you know, Several times out of 10, that's not going to be the case. And they're often exposed to one asset, uh, which leaves them very, very vulnerable to uh, uh, to share price collapses when they're not able to get future financing or they don't hit the pay dirt they're expecting. This company, Diversified Gas and Oil, uh, already has producing assets. It has thousands and thousands of very small wells. These are probably wells which are sitting on a farm somewhere in, in the US, in the App- Appalachian region, which might be producing a few barrels a day. But their model is that these are very, very low-cost assets. They're buying them up on the cheap because the uh, the US uh, conventional oil companies are looking to pour back into the shale industry. 
that means they can hoover them up at a big discount and they're looking to sort of effectively become a cash generating income stock. They're still very small, but it's a really interesting alternative. It's almost like an asset management style way, uh, style of, of running a, uh, a, a natural resources company. But I thought we'd, you know, it's worth flagging because they are, you know, they're, they're pretty different to almost every other oil and gas company I can see in the market. So, All right. Once keep an eye on. Yeah. Bradley, let's talk about a couple of pieces you've written. Reckitt Bank is uh, which is making this acquisition, which nobody seems particularly convinced about. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of like, like Alex said about Shell and their deal with BG, it's, this is kind of a big play for Reckitt. The, the size of the potential deal, they're, they're looking at buying a company called Mead Johnson. It's a US-based company and is... Um, pretty much entirely based around um, its products like infant formula and um, powdered baby milk, that sort of thing. Massive demand for that. Talking yeah. of China again. I mean, China, you know, I've, I've seen countless articles talking about the, the exploding demand for infant formula. Globally, yes, you're absolutely right. And even um, a UK company that you wouldn't think was exposed to it, Dairy Crest, they've recently started producing um, the enzyme, I guess it is, um, that go a key one that goes into infant formula, and they're working with a big New Zealand company that's huge in the infant formula market. So yeah, people are kind of seeing it as an interesting thing to get into. But with this potential record deal, it's it's just so so big. So the the, the size of the deal, if you include Mead Johnson's debt, is going to verge on about eighteen billion dollars, um, and that basically is going to be um, five more than five times the size of the SSL deal that Reckitt did um, a few years ago. Which, which was very successful. Was successful. It was successful. Um, but it's going to be twice as big as all the deals they've ever done, Reckitt, since 1999. So it's a big, big play. It's a big, bold move. It doesn't mean that Reckitt hasn't got the management experience um, to potentially deliver this and they've obviously got experience of you know integrating acquisitions um, previously but um rbc a broker is particularly um, bearish about the the deal and they actually downgraded the stock to underperform um their view actually is is that um rakesh kapoor who's the chief executive of Reckitt, outlined these three sort of hurdles that any potential um, acquisition had to be able to jump those being that it was strategically compelling it would be worth more to wreck it, Ben Kaiser, than its existing owner, and it would create value and not just increase EPS. Now, RBC doesn't think that this deal does any of those things. They're actually very sceptical about it because Reckitt doesn't have experience in infant milk, infant milk formula. Um, so it's a completely new category. It's a very big purchase. Sales at Mead Johnson have been going downhill. So 2015, I think it was down three. Last year, down two. I expect to be down three this year. That's percent. Um, so it, it's it's going to be, if it comes off, it's going to be a fantastic deal. And everyone, everyone who is a bit more bullish on it will say, yeah, told you so. The, the, the experienced management team of Reckitt could deliver it. We always thought they could. But it's a big, big business to take on. It's... I mean, Reckitt's global, but Mead is also global as well, and so there's going to be a lot to manage. And it doesn't really seem like a a quick cost-cutting job to boost the value. It seems like there's going to have to be a real sales rejuvenation, which could be quite you know capital-intensive potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I look at Reckitt and I don't immediately think food, and you know, if a formula, I mean, it's a different type of food, but it's still food. Yeah, you know, I look at Reckitt and I think you know consumables, cleaning products, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I can see how people would think it goes out outside of its comfort zone. But yeah, hey. that's that's part of the concern. But there, as I said, there are people that are bullish, but there are even among those, there are certain things that they pick up. They're like, yeah, this is a 
this is a, a thing to just be aware of kind of thing. So Wreck-It actually has results on Monday, which will, I'll be here to cover. You're going to cover them? My last Yay. day. Yeah. So it would be very interesting to see what they say and what they get asked about the deal and their response to any scepticism about it. I, um, I suspect it will rather be like a, que- a Theresa May quest- uh, PMQs. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it'll be like the Meath Johnson acquisition means the Meath Johnson acquisition, and that's probably all they'll say. Um, uh, I, I, I will add, Wreck-It Bankers, when I used to cover you know consumer products i always got it wrong i could never see the value in it and yet it's been a brilliant performer why were you always bearish john i kind of thought it was always overvalued i always thought the shares were too expensive i thought the change of management was going to be a kind of point for stumbling and i kind of looked at some of the products and thought that they could easily be replaced by some of the non-branded products that people like mcbride would uh, would be selling uh, or, or producing at least uh, and i looked at this kind of uh, albatross it had around it neck, its neck in the form of the uh the pharmaceutical business which it's now spun off um you know which was always a drag but but they've spun it off They've done very well to spin that off, and that in itself is doing all right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, they kind of this is. I think this is a group that defies expectations. And- it is, and some of the some of the analysts actually say in their notes, like if you ask them for remarkable growth in a certain metric, they deliver it and more. So they have got great history of doing this, but I think just the size and scale of this is an issue. And also, an interesting thing that just popped into my head, um, Mr. Kapoor was obviously. Um, a, a very sort of um, a big target, I suppose, for the um, those against high CEO pay. Mm, indeed, last year you know, there was a lot of um, sort of ill will against the size of his salary. If this deal does go ahead and he doesn't really deliver very well on it, that will be very interesting. Yeah. So, so, but he's taking a risk here. Of course he you know, is. He you've, has got to to. Say, you've got to say, you know, he's earning a big pay packet, but in taking on a deal like this, he's trying to earn his salt at least. Yes. And that's the key to it, really, I guess, is that is this acquisition truly strategically sensible, which which Mr. Kapoor said was one of his sort of hurdles for an acquisition, or is it we need this because our own organic growth is slowing and it's it's going to be too difficult to ignite on our own? That will be the big question. You could argue that sort of remuneration strategy is a tautology in a way. So you're saying you pay me a lot, so I will therefore take big risks, but you know big risks in, in and of themselves aren't necessarily good. That's true. But then why would you pay someone a lot just to do the same old, same old that anyone could do? True. <laughs> <laughs> oh, executive pay. We'll never get to the bottom of that, that question. It's a circle that will never be squared. Let's talk about your, uh, your, your other piece in the mag this week, which I find completely bizarre. We've probably talked about it before. I can't remember now. Heineken punched taverns. I still can't get my head around this. Yeah, so um, Heineken, obviously, everyone will know as the, the Dutch brewer, and they'll be thinking, what on earth are they doing buying Punch Taverns, which is probably one of the largest pub groups in the UK by number of pubs. Heineken actually has a Star Pubs and Bars brand. So they actually own quite a few pubs in the UK already. Yeah, well, that, that Outputs of we, didn't, we didn't know. No. Probably been in them all. <laughs> <laughs> but it's bidding to, it's hoping to, and we will find out tomorrow, actually, which will be Friday the 10th of February, whether the deal goes ahead. It's looking to buy 1,900 punch tavern pubs there's a little bit of i don't know controversies you know maybe a a strong word uncertainty is probably a better one from some of the punch publicans who are concerned on two fronts about the deal they're concerned about whether this will trigger what's known as an mro event and that's um links to new regulations which were legislation i should say really launched last year and mro is the market rent only option so if there's a big change in your circumstances as a tenant of a a, you know a, a leasing pub company um 
that can trigger a thing which gives you the right to decide whether to stay with the pub company as a tenant or go market rent only option. But you don't have very long to decide that, apparently. It's about two to three weeks. So publicans are concerned that if Heineken gets the go-ahead tomorrow, then they've only got a few weeks to decide what they want to do. On the counter side of that, if it isn't a trigger event and it won't affect their standing, what they're then concerned about is whether Heineken can just rewrite the agreement. Yeah, but equally... Punch is obviously looking to sell these pubs. If Heineken doesn't buy them, they will have to sell them off at some point anyway, possibly in a more piecemeal fashion. Possibly, yeah. Um, and also, I would say Heineken has said that these concerns about you know existing agreements being rewritten are, are not true. That's not what they're aiming to do. And they don't see it as a trigger event either. So they're not ha- looking to have to deal with 1900 um, in- inquiries from publicans about what they need to do in the next few weeks about the future of their pub. Um, and actually today, I had another um, statement from Heineken which said that the um, Society of Independent Brewers has actually welcomed the announcement by Heineken about buying the pubs because they um, believe um, what Heineken has said, that Heineken will not force these pubs it's taking over to stock um, their own goods, basically. Because the chap from the Punch Tenant Network that I spoke to said, actually, as a portfolio, something like 60, 60% of stock across the board is about is Coors Lager, which obviously isn't owned by Heineken. So there's a fear that Heineken might sort of force these pubs to stock their products. But Heineken says, no, we're not doing that. It's not worth it. Um, and CBA, the Society of Independent Brewers, has said they, they believe them and they, they welcome that. Is that likely to affect the vote on... Well, this is it. It's a big question. I mean, I I tried to get a hold of some of the investors yesterday and um, I didn't have any luck. But um, I guess if you um, believe Heineken, and there's no reason not to, that they they won't just force Heineken beer and other products that they own on the pubs, which could impact those pubs' profitability, then I guess you wouldn't see any reason not to let it go through. And it's it's also slightly complicated, I suppose, as a Punch Tavern's shareholder, because once the deal goes through, um, I I don't think there's going to be a Punch listing, obviously, and and Heineken Mm. is um, listed in in Holland. So You better figure it all out before Monday. I know, I know. I've got a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do some market research over the weekend. All right, thank you. Um, Okay, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the the main news uh, of the week. Um, Unfortunately, we can't talk about the cover feature this week, which is written by James Norrison, because he's in the middle of moving house right now. What James is doing this week with the cover feature, which is is excellent, is looking at big narratives in investing. And I think we've we've touched upon a few of those big narratives today, um, and how you have to basically be careful when when you're looking at these in respect of investing. I actually talk about one of these big narratives in my editorial, which is the idea that e-commerce is this wonderful thing that's going to lift everybody that's exposed to it. But I think we had some evidence this week that that wasn't the case in DX Group and its massive profit warning. And, and you've written about this uh, this week in, in respect of Amazon, mm. which is obviously getting heavily involved in, in delivery space. And, and as you wrote in your excellent feature a few months back, uh, is, a, is a massive threat to a lot of, of companies in this industry that are listed. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, logistics still is. I mean, however much truck you you can place in e-commerce, which nice I, fun. I, I think is. A, I think <laughs> I didn't even realize that. One. Um, I, I think it's significant. Obviously, it's you know it's long been hammering the high street. The 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 actual uh, heavy lifting side of it, logistics, is still intensely competitive. I mean, the the, the profit warning from DX Group. I think has clearly been some very poor expectation setting there. But I mean, it just shows how 
it, particularly in the UK, how competitive that industry is at the moment and yeah. how difficult it is to make make money, really. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my, my experience with this minus angle of this is that it's quite low margin, that, uh, you know, it's quite expensive to actually make a, a, a good logistics network work. Um, you know, lots of investment in software, lots of investment in, in obviously, uh, people and trucks. Um, and Amazon just, you know... When I when I thought about it, Amazon has something that the the, the kind of incumbents in the industry don't, and that is this this expertise in actually building software yeah. platforms and, and robotics as well. And robotics, I mean, yeah, yeah. and yeah, I'd be very worried if I was invested in that sector. Even more worried than I was when I first read your feature, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, DX, it was a shocker, but we've we've seen this coming. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Bradley. Thank you very much, Alex. Plenty more in the magazine this week. Obviously, Personal Finance will be back with their podcast tomorrow, talking about everything in the Personal Finance Fund section. Uh, The big feature there is on uh, VCTs, Venture Capital Trusts, which are a very, very tax-efficient way uh, of investing in smaller companies. An interesting sector focus this week from Emma Powell, looking at uh, the new regulatory changes about to affect the uh, CFD and spread betting industry and how they can cope with that, uh, obviously the usual tips. We're starting to, starting to crank up the results now. It's going to get busy as we get into February. Bet you'd be glad to be missing that, Bradley. Yeah, it's very timely, Bradley. Well, I'll still be covering some of them actually in my new job. So. Not in the same way. Not, <laughs> no, not, not the not, same not... intensity of a <laughs> of an IC results. Of course not. I'll be looking upon them, thinking, "I wish I was that <laughs> insightful." <laughs> when do you start? The twentieth. Okay. Right, nice. You got a week off then. Yeah. All right, nice. And uh, all the usual comments, uh, a little bit more in the news section. We haven't really talked about this morning. We've got a Q&A this week. Rosie Carr uh, looking at some tax tax issues that uh, that we think are quite important that we don't really get the chance to cover uh, very often um, because they're too difficult, but we try our best anyway. Could I give a plug as well to Mark Robinson's uh, interview with um, Red Tea Energy as well, which is another, in the podcast feed you should have in front of you uh, is also on there. Okay, he's finally done it because I know he was supposed to do that one when we when he published his batteries feature a few weeks back. Uh, it all ties together; it's all connected. It does, it does indeed. And we've got lots more podcasts coming up, which you'll be you'll be leading for Alex, which is why I hope you're sticking around for. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you, thank you, Brady, thank you, Alex, and uh, thank you all for listening. Fairy tale investing: why the big investment stories don't always have a happy ending is the cover of the uh, magazine this week. Four by ninety, all good news agents, or get online and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.